Hi, folks. We are so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read your comments for your feedback. We would also love you to join in to financially support the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Celeste Headley sitting in for Farai Chidea. The pandemic wiped out tens of thousands of American jobs, and not surprisingly, women as a group continued to be the hardest hit. Millions of women are newly unemployed, sparking debates about how far back these losses could push women's progress in the workplace and exacerbate already dire gender disparities across the board. What's more, mothers in our new pandemic normal are experiencing much higher rates of anxiety and depression. A new study shows that postpartum depression tripled for new mothers. In the face of what appears to be a starkly grim reality, one woman, activist and founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms, argues that now is actually a moment of opportunity for women. That's Reshma Sajani, author of the international bestseller Brave Not Perfect and Women Who Don't Wait in Line. She has a new book out titled Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. I spoke with her about the new work and how she sees this moment. Hi, Reshma. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Let's start with this moment. How would you describe the present landscape for working women? I guess not only the current realities, but the outlook. I mean, women are in crisis. Millions of us are missing still from the workforce. Uh, When we started the pandemic in 2020, 51% of the labor force was female. We were flying our feminist flags high, right? That was the first time in the history of our country that that had happened. And then the pandemic hit. And uh, millions of women were pushed out of the workforce because they had to supplement their paid labor for unpaid labor because schools were shut down. Daycare centers were closed. You know, you were terrified of bringing your grandparents in your home to look after your kids because you didn't want them to get COVID-19. And so that entire structure of care dissipated. And it was already on a shaky ground. And so now, two years later, uh, women have made gains, but we're still not at, you know, pre-pandemic levels. And some of this is attributed to the fact that workplaces are finally open to remote working and flexibility. And so knowledge workers who are still facing a childcare crisis can actually work and have a child. But for many women who are working in retail, manufacturing, you know, that's not possible. And so we are in crisis. And you're not just seeing this in our labor market participation, but in our mental health. 51% of mothers say that they're anxious and depressed. Moms don't break, but we are broken. When we're talking about this moment, I read this Amazon review, which raised my eyebrows because it was clearly from a a boomer mother. And she said this, quote, the challenges faced by working mothers today are the same challenges I read about back in my graduate school days in the early 1970s. The fact that these same issues remain unresolved some 50 years later is disheartening. And so, you know, we're talking about what's different in sort of the new pandemic normal, but many of the things are just exacerbations of what existed before, right? That's right. But what's different, I think, in this pandemic, I'll say for myself, is I had an awakening. You know, I found myself with two little kids running an organization 
and it nearly broke me. And I have help. And, you know, I had spent the past 10 years telling my girls or co-students to, you know, barnstorm the corner office and to lean in and to girl boss their way to the top. I remember, Celeste, I would be speaking at a panel and I'd get to the Q&A, you know, section. And I may have just literally left the green room breastfeeding my son. And a young woman would say to me, well, Mr. Johnny, Mr. Johnny, how do you balance having a kid and being a CEO? And I would look at her almost annoyed and wave my hand and say, don't worry about that. Just focus on the hustle, on working real hard. We all bought into this corporate feminism that all you had to do was get a mentor or sponsor and color code your calendar. We bought into the fact that we were being taught that it's our fault. It's not the structure. It's not that we don't have paid leave or affordable childcare or we live in a work culture that is literally built around men. It's our fault. And so to me, that was my big aha in what I'm really trying to share with people in this book. You know, you're you're honest in the book about being wrong, about discovering that you were wrong about um, some things. And I wonder, what was it that brought that aha moment? Like, what did you see specifically that changed your mind? School closures and the design of hybrid schooling. For me, a, a lot of my executive leadership team were working women of young children. And so a lot of us depended on the schools, the public schools, right, to be able to work. And, you know, when schools closed and they came up with this idea of hybrid learning, you know, where you would have to log on your kid at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, all the while maintaining your full-time job. I I remember thinking, like, aren't they going to ask us? Because here's the thing, you know, we do time and use surveys in America. So we knew in March, April, May, and June whose labor was being used to school and who was going to actually face an economic backlash if they had to literally homeschool their kids while they maintain their full-time job. And so to me, the shock and that millions of women's potential dreams, health, could be demolished in one policy decision that did not even consider us. I don't even think they probably talked about us when they made that decision. And and that was terrifying to me because this could happen again. And so all of this, all of this fighting, all of this organizing, all these policy changes, all of it's in vain if we actually don't change the structure. And what I mean by that is like, you know, we live in a country, the only industrialized nation that doesn't offer paid leave. The vast majority of women go back to work 10 days after having a baby. You don't recover from that physically or mentally. You know, secondly, we don't have affordable childcare in our country. Most most people pay more for their childcare than their mortgage. And so it is literally the largest cost center of families. Most women work to work, right? School days are eight to three. Work days are nine to five. Why? Until we make some of these structural changes, we as working women are constantly going to have to navigate being a mother and caretaking and having a job. And then when our kids get older, our parents are going to get older. And then we go from our kids to our parents. Honestly, when I talk to my friends whose kids are older, but now who have 80-year-old parents that need help, it's the same struggle. And it's the same lack of understanding from society and their employers. Because the reality is two-thirds of caregiving work is done by women. Yeah. I mean, men are doing more of it, but it's it's not even 
close to equal. <laughs> I mean, men are doing more of it, but also we gaslight them when they do. Oh, that's really true. We live in a culture, right? People say to me, like, well, what are we going to do about the men? I'm like, what do you mean? They're with me. You know, they, they want the same things, but we live in a culture where when you say, I'm going to take paid leave, you will literally be, what, are you breastfeeding? Like, we ridicule men when they participate in this way. Yeah. And so that has to change, too. As I was reading your book, I started to think of some of the the headlines that have come out. Like, I, I saw a press release from one of the rideshare companies saying, oh, look at this woman so dedicated. She was in labor and she took one last ride on her way to the hospital. And then, of course, there was that all those headlines made by that state Senate candidate in Minnesota who was actually in labor while she was giving her speech. And everyone was talking about her being, you know, so tough. I remember one woman's comment being, God, I, I feel terrible for having complained that I was on bed rest, right? What do you make of the way media handles these stories about working mothers. We've made moms feel like they have to be martyrs, that they have to do it all, and that they can't ask for help from their partners, from their government, or from their employers. And we make it seem like there's all these women out there, they're, they're balancing it all. So what's wrong with me? And it becomes a personal problem and not a societal problem. And that's what's toxic. Again, I own up to this. I have the t-shirt in my closet about being a girl boss and being a fierce mom. We have literally got to throw all them in the garbage. All the way that we have been culturally taught. Are you going to throw all your t-shirts in the garbage? Yes, I am. I am. They're cute. I don't want to, but I have to because I, I think the thing <laughs> is like we have to ask ourselves like, why do we think we have imposter syndrome? Because we're wearing a t-shirt that tells us that we're good enough, which subliminally is telling us we're not good enough. 72% of high school valedictorians are young women. The majority of those graduating from college are women. The majority of those with their PhDs and their master's degrees are women. So we are the most educated, most prepared, most qualified. So then what happens to us? They tell us that all of a sudden we're not ready and we buy into it. Is there still advice from your previous work, your, I guess, lean-in phase, your girl boss phase, that you think is still relevant and helpful? Yeah, I mean, listen, a lot of what I was talking about in Brave Not Perfect is still relevant because it is true. Part of this problem that we're talking about is the socialization of perfection. And it's heightened when you're a mother uh, and that you have to basically do it all. Yeah. And so I, I do think that unlearning and becoming imperfect and actually finding time for yourself in, in actually demanding, asking from your employers. Like, I'm really obsessed with organizing in workplaces. You know, we are not going to get paid leave. You mean union organizing? What is the 21st century way that we organize moms in corner offices and in retail to ask for paid leave, to ask for remote work, to ask for flexibility, to ask for affordable childcare? Especially when we're in the middle of the Great Resignation where there are so many open jobs that we actually have leverage in the workforce. And I think that, like, for a lot of women, they don't know how to ask for that. Your HR is not going to teach you how to do it. There's this missing space, I think, that exists where there's an opportunity, I think, to build community and to build teaching on how we actually create power. If you look at the whole picture today, from abortion to, to the fact that our babies are dying, number one, 
guns to the baby formula shortage. You know, all of it is interconnected in the sense of that our work is not valued or respected. We have got to change that. And we can't wait for someone to basically say, oh, I'm going to respect you now. I'm going to value you now. We have to demand it. That's Reshma Sajani, CEO and founder of Girls Who Code, and author of the new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, and Why It's Different Than You Think. Coming up next, more with activist Reshma Sajani on what we can do to support working moms in the new pandemic landscape. Plus, author and unconscious bias expert Pamela Fuller explains how bias continues to thwart DEI initiatives in the workplace. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Reshma Sajani, CEO and founder of Girls Who Code, and author of the new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women in Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. Sajani is a longtime advocate for gender equity in the workplace. And when recently thrust into being a working mom from home because of the pandemic, she found her formerly championed mottos like girl boss and lean in no longer had the same appeal. So Johnny's now calling to end the stigma of motherhood in the workplace and get support for her viral initiative to provide a salary for motherhood or what she called a Marshall Plan for Moms. Let's hear more of my conversation with her. I want to read just a paragraph from your book. You say, there is a one in a generation opportunity that must not be missed to redefine the future of women and work, a future in which the work of labor in the home is valued and compensated on par with the labor in paid jobs, in which quality, affordable childcare and paid parental leave are understood as essential to preserving the innovation and diverse capital women bring to the workforce, one in which workers' wellness is valued just as much as their output, and women no longer have to hide their identities in order to succeed. What does that last part mean about having to hide your identity in order to achieve success? I mean, think about if I go speak at an event right now and I say, how many of you waited to the last possible second to tell your employer you were pregnant? Every hand was raised. There's an article in the New York Times about how Zoom's so great because you can hide your pregnancy all the way till month eight. And so why do we hide our pregnancy? Because we know that when we tell our employers that we're pregnant, we'll suffer a motherhood penalty. Opportunities will be taken away from us. We might get fired, right? The implicit deal that we make with the workplace is like, I'm going to hide being a mom. And it starts literally before you, you know, the baby's even born. And so I think that we have to stop doing that. And I tell people, tell people you're pregnant when you're pregnant, right? Don't say sorry when your kid interrupts your Zoom call. Walk into your employer's office and say, you know, you're, you're paying for my gym membership. I need support in my childcare." basically leading with our motherhood as part of our identity instead of hiding it. What would the world then look like? And men do this. So, you know, what I'd say to people, it's not caretaking. It's about who's doing the caretaking. So many more men I see now say, look, I got to leave this meeting early because I got to go pick up Johnny from school. And we're like, oh, you're such a great dad. Thank you. (laughs) So we don't have a problem with it when men are doing it. But when we do it, it's different. It's all of a sudden we're not committed to our jobs. We're distracted. 
we're not as economically, you know, valuable. We have to really culturally root out the motherhood penalty. But by doing that, I think that we have to also stop participating in a system that makes us hide our identity and penalizes it for it. That's so much easier, though, when you have some leverage and power in your organization. I mean, one of my friends down the street, she was applying for a promotion and she hid her pregnancy because she knew there was a chance she wouldn't get the promotion. And it's one thing to say to her, no, don't hide it. Go ahead and do it. But the reality is it might cost her the promotion. Like that could happen. Um, What do you say to someone who's lower on the totem pole, who doesn't feel that they have the kind of leverage to be able to back up that, that boldness? It's up to us to fight for them, right? Yeah. And I think that's right. I think it's up to, you know, if you're a partner or if you're a manager, if you're working at a place that you quite frankly could sue your company, you should not be hiding your pregnancy up until the last second. It's up to us to change culture for our most vulnerable sisters, you know, period. Because it is true. You know, you read the story about a mom who, like, didn't have childcare, worked at a pizza parlor, left her kids at her apartment, and she gets put in jail for child endangerment. You know, women who get fired because they were leaving their employer to basically go pick up a laptop so their kid could learn at school. I mean, this type of discrimination is happening every second. But it's so interesting, Celeste. It's like we've spent a lot of time as a culture, not successfully, of trying to root out discrimination, you know, on race, on sexual orientation, and even on gender. And I would argue that the problem in many ways is not a gender discrimination. It's actually discrimination against motherhood. And even as when I started the Marshall Plan for Moms, people were like, well, what about the dads? I'm like, well, what about them? Right? Dads are not discriminated in the workforce for being dads. Mothers are. Women in 22 states make more than men, childless women. But the minute you become a mother, the discrimination begins. And I think if we actually focused on that and tried to root that out, we'd get to equality quicker. So as we move into an environment which it seems like we're at least uh, many jobs, especially in the knowledge jobs, will have hybrid work um, or at least partially remote work as an option, do you see that as a net positive for women? It's absolutely a net positive if we design in a way that doesn't just, you know, create more inequality. So, you know, what I say is who's coming into the office? Who's not coming into the office? How are we making performance reviews? Are we still valuing FaceTime so that when women are kind of not coming because they're doing child caring and they're doing the laundry in between their Zooms, they're getting penalized for it? So I think that we have to be very intentional about flexibility and remote work. And I think the second thing is, is we have to really, at the same time we're building this, you know, we have to really support our hourly workers with building predictability around their schedules. You know, so Walmart, for example, started building an app that would help hourly workers change shifts between each other, which allowed them to manage their childcare situations. As we're thinking about design, it can't just be about the woman in the corner office. It's got to be about everybody. Listen, there's still going to be resistance, you know, as we saw, you know, we saw this with Elon Musk, you know, we've seen this with Jamie Dimon. There's still resistance because there's this perception that people are at home, like, watching Netflix. Even though if you, you know, look at the productivity, it's actually not true. Um, people are more productive, yeah. you know what I mean, at home. But there's still that narrative. So if we're the ones at home, all of a sudden we're the ones that are lazy and not committed and not productive. Let's talk about solutions because you lay out some very specific solutions 
in your book. And we might as well begin with the title of the book, which is Pay Up. And that uh, refers to the unpaid work that mothers take on. You say up to 20 hours a week above what fathers do. And of course, it's likely more than 20 hours for millions of single mothers as well. So let's talk about the pay for the unpaid work. How would this work? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is we have to acknowledge that women are doing caregiving work, caretaking work, that is basically the equivalent of a job and that allows society to be functional. And so how can we value this? And the second piece of that is how are we going to change that ratio so that it's not two-thirds of women? You know, it's 50-50. And how do we build, quite frankly, for single moms, you know, who don't have that second partner at home? You know, I think we should always be building for the most vulnerable And we built workplaces for a man who had a stay-at-home partner instead of building workplaces for a single mom. And so if you were to build a workplace for a single mom, what would that look like? So one, I think it would be a workplace that had flexibility in remote work in a way that was designed that didn't penalize against her when she took that benefit. Secondly, it'd be a workplace that offered paid leave, but also incentivized men to take it, you know, so that we, we truly were shifting the gender ratio of work at home, and shifting the cultural perception of who does care work and who doesn't. You know, the third piece, and this is a piece that we're very focused on at Marshall Plan for Moms right now, is affordable childcare. Listen, the childcare model in our country is broken. And so someone has to provide a subsidy that's either going to be the government or the private sector. The government, unfortunately, has made it clear that they're not going to provide the subsidy, even though Literally in America, you cannot work. The vast majority of Americans cannot work without childcare. We don't live in the 1950s where there's a stay-at-home partner. Both people need to work, and they're still barely making it. I read somewhere that the average cost of taking care of two kids for a family is $240,000. Nobody has that, right? So someone has to provide the subsidy. So it's got to be the private sector. Right now, about 10% of companies provide some sort of child care benefit. We launched the National Business Child Care Coalition to start making the case that child care is an economic issue and is a benefit that companies should be providing to workers. And we've got a lot, a lot of support for this. My mission, literally in the next three to five years, is to make it the norm that most companies are providing both hourly workers and salaried workers some sort of childcare benefit to help reduce the cost. So this is another wrinkle in that the kind of epidemic we have of people who are not employees but independent contractors, that even if we do make this part of the private sector, it's going to be difficult to convince corporations to not just make everyone an independent contractor, right? Like we're in the age of the freelancer, the age of the side hustles, right? If you're going to use the private sector as your solution, how do you get past this trend of not hiring people? Yeah. Well, I think that they're realizing, they should realize that the cost of attrition is really, really high. And in fact, it's you know more expensive to keep losing people and to keep turning people over than to start actually investing in them. Something happened along the way where we stopped actually valuing our workers. We basically started treating them like widgets. And when that happened, people started also being like, all right, I'm going to work here for eight months, nine months, one year, two years. People stopped staying. You know, when I think about my parents, they stayed at their employers for 30 years. 
And it's because, you know, their bosses knew my name, knew where I went to school, came to my graduation, you know, organized family picnics. And so I think the way that we're treating people right now is really causing a, a tremendous amount of turnover and a tremendous amount of economic loss. I mean, some of the partners in our coalition, like Etsy, for example, they've been providing these benefits for a long time, and they've seen basically them pay themselves back by being able to retain employees. So let's, since we're talking about pay, we might as well stay with pay. In 2020, you wrote an article that went viral in which you advocated for the Marshall Plan for Moms. And that would include a $2,400 monthly paycheck to support mothers. So can we talk a little bit about how that would be paid for and how it would help? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we put that number out there just because that was the number that people were getting for stimulus checks. And part of it was just to, like, put an idea out there. And, ooh, did people have feelings about it? This idea of paying mothers for their labor was incredibly controversial, even though in many countries, that's exactly what they do. It's called a parental income. They do that in the U.K. When you have a child, the government sends you a check. Because, you know, any country that doesn't have a growing population is a dying country. And the reality is, is that, it, you know, America's had the lowest birth rate in 50 years. I think it ticked up a little bit recently. But it's because it's too expensive. And so we have got to start valuing the labor that caretakers do and literally put a number on it. So we put that number, $2,400 a month. And it really ignited a lot of conversations and, and part of what I talk about in the book is I think we need to ask ourselves, why does it make us feel so uncomfortable? And we need to recognize how that uncomfortability has gotten us to this place where our government is bailing out airlines but not bailing out moms. We are literally having a baby formula shortage that we should have done something about months ago, but we're expecting moms to just scour the aisles of Walmart. We're not valuing the work that they do, and we're not supporting them for it. I think that some of this discomfort nationally, traces back to the 1980s with Ronald Reagan and his yep. apocryphal stories about welfare queens, which turned out to be based on nothing. <laughs> um, yep. But uh, I, I think that we have, as a nation, sort of subliminally accepted this idea that if you pay mothers uh, to help offset childcare costs, they're going to have more babies in order to get more money. Or, as Joe Manchin said, which was why he didn't want to support the child tax credit, is that they're going to use it for drugs. Yeah. But it's the same narrative that they yes. made in the 1980s. Again, it's this it's this sense that women can't be trusted. Same thing that's happening with Roe v. Wade. That immediately we want to decide who can be a mother and who can't be a good mother. And we want we, the government should basically control that. And so we're not going to give you any resources, any support, any help. Um, even if you think about the tax code, Celeste, the way that it's designed, it's designed to have wealthy women be able to stay at home because it's much cheaper to stay at home than to work and have really poor women have to constantly work and never see their children. Because, again, we have very racist views about who is and who is not a good mother in this country. It's not right. So what do you make then of the 2021 child tax credit how significant was the passage of, of that? And could it lead Huge. to better things? Yeah. Huge. I was really hopeful. We pushed hard, work, you know, pushed hard for it. That I was hopeful that it would be renewed and it wasn't tied to be working in the workplace. That's right. You know, that is exactly the way that it should have been 
done and structured. So we were very, 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 very hopeful. And it's, it is a huge, I mean, you put 40 million kids in poverty overnight when you didn't, when you, you know, didn't expand it. Are there other things now that you're hoping will come as a result of the passage, successful passage of that tax credit? Well, I mean, it got expired. So we, unless they, unless they do it in reconciliation, that moment has passed. Same thing with you know, we had a minute of paid leave, right? Yeah. Emergency paid leave. Uh, there were talks about affordable childcare and creating that 7% ceiling, which was would have been game-changing for families. So all of the things that we should have done, you know, are seemingly unlikely to pass, and we have to still fight about it. And it goes back to this point, though, about private sector. The private sector can't do it alone. It's yeah. got to be the private sector and government. It's it's a both-and Um and I think in many ways right now, if we could basically demonstrate, this is where the private sector I think is helpful, is that if you can demonstrate that there's an economic benefit in providing these benefits, then maybe some of these senators and Congress people can get their heads around the fact that you just can't have a functioning economy if you don't provide childcare supports, or if you don't have paid leave, or if you don't have a child tax credit. It's not a, it's not a freebie or a handout. So I want to ask this about activism because the book is literally asking people to join a movement. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you think that's more likely now. We seem to be in an age of activism, not just with the women's marches, but the Black Lives Matter movement. We seem to be in an age when people are ready to literally take to the streets. Are you calling people to a literal movement? I am. I'm calling us to rise up and take our rage and put it into power. But you're doing it with a group of people that are the most exhausted, beaten down, and have the least amount of time. So I don't know if that's a march. I don't know if that's a protest. What I say in the book is, like, I want you to advocate for one thing for yourself. We need to build that muscle where we realize that we deserve to be valued, and we can ask for what we need, and we don't have to be martyrs. And that is like deep conditioning deep conditioning that has to change. But this is our once-in-a-lifetime moment. This really is. I, I, I deeply feel that way. And I do want women to see all of the interconnections between everything that is happening in the world right now. I mean, six out of 10 women who get abortions are mothers. You know, what's happening in our schools on gun violence, those are our babies. You know, what happened with baby formula, what's happening, I mean, paid leave, it's all tied together. And so we need a wholesale cultural shift and a realignment about our value. And we can't just sit and wait for them to see us. We have to make ourselves be seen. Reshma, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Reshma Sajani, CEO and founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms. She's author of the international best-selling book, Brave Not Perfect, and now out with a new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women in Work, and why it's different than you think. Coming up next, DEI initiatives are finally gaining a little traction in the workplace, but why aren't we seeing better results? We invite Pamela Fuller, Franklin Covey thought leader on inclusion and bias, to help us understand how our unchecked biases can even hinder the best laid plans. You're listening to Our Body Politic.
This is Our Body Politic. I'm Celeste Headley, sitting in for Farai Chidea. We just heard from Reshma Saujani, a leading voice in the movement to close the gender wage gap. She believes that now is a critical time for businesses to rethink and reshape the way they support their employees. On one hand, the pandemic's disruption to the economy, workforce, and traditional office practices really gives us an opportunity to hit the reset button. But on the other hand... When we've tried in the past to recreate our workplaces to be more diverse, equitable, inclusive, progress has been slow or non-existent. We try for change, but quickly return to the same work habits we've been using for generations. And that's despite the fact that diverse organizations are more likely to succeed. And the consequences for companies that lack diversity continue to grow. So what's the disconnect here? Joining me now to talk this through is Pamela Fuller, co-author of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. She's also a Franklin Covey thought leader on inclusion and bias. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Celeste. Thanks so much for having me. There's a lot to dig into here, but I want to start by asking you how it could be that we could invest so much money into DEIB efforts and they don't work. So I looked it up, and a study from the Society of Human Resource Management reported that among Fortune 1000 companies, they spend, on average, $1.5 million per year on DEI training. But every time they do a research study, there's no evidence that shows these standard initiatives actually reduce bias and discrimination. So what's going wrong? I think that many organizations are still looking at DEIB as a check-the-box exercise. I mean, this whole field really comes from compliance and risk mitigation. If you think about sort of lawsuits about harassment and discrimination, that's the history of this space. Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are supposed to transcend that. It's not supposed to be just a check-the-box activity or initiative. If we think about real substantial change, if you think about any change you've made yourself or a mindset shift that you may have made, it didn't happen in a one-hour keynote. You know, it's not, it's not a TED Talk that's going to fix the problem <laughs> as profound as TED Talks can be. It is a series of learning and then implementing that learning and really pulling that learning into the infrastructure of the organization and asking more critical questions, not just where might bias exist in the organization, but what biases are impacting my decisions as a leader or as someone who has influence in the business or in the employment of others. I was interested to see that, in fact, some research shows the standard diversity initiatives, the one that you were just describing, actually are prone to increase the chance for bias and acts of discrimination after people take that training. So I found this study, this study out of Stanford, that showed you know, when they gave them tasks like hire, decide who to hire or decide where the, this money in the city budget goes. If in the initial questionnaire, they allowed white people to say, I voted for Obama, they were significantly more likely to do discriminatory things. They were significantly more likely to hire the white person instead of the black person, significantly more likely to allocate money to to initiatives that benefit white people instead of black people. And I wonder what you make of this sort of inoculation problem, this idea that when somebody goes through diversity training, they think, I'm not racist now. (laughs) How do we get past that? 
we all want to think of ourselves as good people. Dolly Chug talks about this. She talks about this idea that we all define ourselves as good people. And when you are so busy defining yourself as a good person, you're never looking at opportunities to improve, right? You're in that defensive mode. And so what she advocates is that we instead define ourselves as good-ish people. That if you acknowledge that you have room for improvement, then you're more likely to make better decisions. This is the controversy around unconscious bias training specifically, is that so much of unconscious bias training is focused on de-vilifying bias, is getting the defenses down for people saying, we all have bias. It's a natural part of the human condition. It's how the brain works. And then we leave, right? Because that's all you can do in an hour. And so, so people... People, they're like, great, I'm not a bad person if I have bias, and then they're more likely to lean into their biases, right? Or if you sort of prime the pump and say, well, I voted for Obama as a white person, I voted for Obama, then you've done your good deed, and so you are then infallible, right? You're, you, you're not going to make poor decisions. What changes that is if we say, yes, we are all humans, and humans all have bias, and bias impacts every decision that you make. This can be tricky, though, right? Because when we start talking about how universal bias is, and it is universal, you are not a conscious and living human being without being biased in some way. This can make some people of color say, don't blame us. Why are you saying we're biased? Or it could make a white person do a both sidesism, right? Like, see, everyone's biased. This is everyone's problem. Um, and that can also get in the way of making changes in organizations, don't you think? Absolutely. And what's important to think about is that we all are coming at it through our own lens, right? So I'm a, I'm a Black woman, and I also have bias. And my bias may not be about race, it may not be about gender, or it may even be in favor of the marginalized groups as a Black woman. But I have other biases, and I talk about this in the book. I give examples of education bias, or thinking about socioeconomics, or um, even... I think one thing that lots of people of color run into is they find that managers of color hold them to a higher standard than they might hold other people. That whole idea that we have to be twice as good to get half as much. And so then you find yourself as a manager of color holding your employees of color to an even higher bar or not making decisions based on the same criteria across race. So it is true that Black people also have bias. It doesn't mean that white people get to ignore the biases they have about Black people, right? It means that each of us needs to do an examination of the lens through which we're looking at a situation and ensure that our biases are not hindering performance. Is my bias getting in the way of someone feeling valued and feeling a sense of belonging? And if the answer to that is yes, then I have to do something about it. That's my responsibility. So then what works? If the average training in this area doesn't get to the problem or, as you say, just starts with one hour and doesn't stay with it until you can actually affect change. What have you seen? Have you seen companies responding, especially in the past couple of years, responding to racial turmoil and conversations about equity and doing it right? I think what I'm seeing, if I were to articulate it differently, is that I am seeing lots of companies doing some of it right so I think lots of companies are doing maybe one or two good things, but not necessarily, I don't know that I could identify a company that's doing all the things together that would sort of create the kind of systemic big wave push of change that we'd like to see. I do think when we think about best practices, 
my approach and Franklin Covey's approach, and if, if you read the Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, is really focused on the individual. Each individual needs to be able to articulate to their team, if you think about leaders, why this matters to them. And that's the only way it stays at the forefront. They also need practical skills. So what is it that I can do in the day-to-day? And there are best practices around that. Are we making hiring decisions by panel versus by individual decision? Are we elevating, for example, if uh, the best practice is three people on a hiring panel, right? It's an odd number and it's all people who've received some education around diversity and there is identity diversity in that panel, um, there should also be uh, hierarchy diversity, right? So if I'm hiring on my team, I should pull in one of my team members to be part of the interview, not just management, because the team member is going to have a different kind of perspective. It's important to have some format to interviews to ensure that we're asking each candidate the same questions. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Celeste Headley sitting in for Farai Chidea. I'm talking about DEI in the workplace with Pamela Fuller, co-author of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias and a Franklin Covey Inclusion and Bias Thought Leader. You have said, and I, I, I want to quote you here, you say, talking to executives about diversity has basically been the equivalent of telling kids to eat their vegetables. They will begrudgingly do it, but without any real enthusiasm and mainly just to stay out of trouble. This is what you have been talking about. How do we do that differently? How do we engage with executives uh, on diversity and transform them from a kid having to eat broccoli to somebody who's enthusiastic about dessert? Like, how do we get them excited? I think it takes multiple approaches. So it's not just education, because the reality of education is in a group setting, an executive in particular is only going to be so forthcoming. So we implement what we call reinforcement coaching. And it's important for those executives to have a one-on-one relationship where someone is really pushing them on their own biases and their decision-making and helping coach them through how to make unbiased decisions and how to really be more inclusive in their decisions. At Franklin Covey, we have a saying, we want everyone who works in an organization to be able to say, I'm a valued member of a winning team um, doing meaningful work in an environment of trust. So individual coaching can really help them be more vulnerable um, and implement the practices that a training might recommend. Whereas when you just recommend something in a training and then everyone sort of goes about their business, there's no accountability and there's no space to experiment and try and fail and try again. Your approach is really founded in the best knowledge we have on psychology and neurology, right? And you have mentioned in a number of pieces you've written that at any moment, quote, our brain faces 11 billion bits of information and can only actively process 40. Why is that particular data point important in these conversations about DEI? Because our brain focuses on what it wants to focus on or what we've built as a habit in terms of how we make decisions. So when we're aware of that, then we notice things that we may not notice otherwise being able to evaluate where I might be making a a knee-jerk decision or thinking of confirmation bias, where I go into a circumstance already knowing the answer, and then I only look for information that confirms the answer. We have to sort of hijack that automatic processing in the brain and implement best practices and behaviors that help us see something that might not be automatic to us. I'm so glad you said hijack these automatic processes, because in a number of ways— we're really kind of fighting against 
some very ingrained tendencies, right? The ingrained tendency that we all have to group people together. The very ingrained process of like being attracted to and comfortable with people who look like us and have the same experience as us. Then there's the whole thing of unconscious bias. It's very difficult to fight bias when it's literally unconscious. Like that's the definition of it. So can you give us some tips on how we can A, become aware of our unconscious biases when they are unconscious? And then what do we do then? So I share an example in the book of um, making a hiring decision. And I hired a young woman and I was very excited about this young woman. And she says, you know, I'm so excited to work for you and Franklin Covey. Also, I'm pregnant. What's your maternity leave policy? And in that moment, my heart sank. Like I was like, but that's very inconvenient for me. And it was really an example of my unconscious biases coming to the surface and slapping me in the face. I have three children. I have worked my whole adult life. I've taken maternity leave. I've been the beneficiary of paid leave, right? That is more generous than the federal requirement. And in that moment, I had a bias that I never would have said I had. You know what I mean? If you would have asked me, do you have a bias against pregnant women? Like, absolutely not. As a mother of three, how could I? But I did in that moment. So there is this vulnerability that is required of leaders to just think about when someone says something to me, what is it that I feel? It's pausing between stimulus and response. Because if I had reacted to her with what I felt, that would have been a really poor sort of first message from me as her new boss, right? But I had to own in that moment that I had a negative thought and then behave differently, It's like, okay, I am going to give this person all of the support that they deserve and require. I'm going to lean into all the research I've read that says supportive work environments for uh, families and parents make for better results and working conditions. And then that is what occurred. But I had to have that self-awareness. I think as leaders... Each of us should create some space in our day to think about the decisions that we made after the fact. It's as simple as putting 15 minutes in your calendar before a meeting to think about what you're coming into that meeting with. What assumptions do I have? I think about facts versus feelings and what is a fact and what is a feeling. And then after a meeting or after decisions have been made, giving yourself some space to think about why did I make that decision? And have I been in circumstances like this before? And is there a trend in that decision-making, right? It's sort of metacognition, thinking about your own thinking and evaluating your decisions before and after they occur. That helps us start to retrain our brain to be more cognizant of the automatic uh, assumptions it's making. Since you're talking about, you know, supporting mothers, um, I wonder how these conversations are going with you now as we try to recover from the disruption of the pandemic. And and I say that in in light of some of the research that's coming out showing that black women in particular, they're happier when they're not at the office. They're not subject to microaggressions all day long. Um, that m- parents, mothers or fathers, um, want more flexibility in their schedules so they can achieve a better work-life balance. And yet we have a lot of leaders being quite resistant to that, saying, come back into the office full time or you're out. What kind of uh, advice are you giving to leaders on, on what to do going forward? My belief is that we won't be able to ever return to a fully in-person workplace. I mean, I just think 
all the things that people said couldn't be done remotely, the pandemic showed that they could, right? So many, yeah. so many things happen remotely. I think one of the things that's important for leaders, a lot of organizations are moving to this hybrid approach where people can come in if they want and don't need to come in if they don't want. And that can create a circumstance where the people who do decide to come in have an inherent advantage, right? It's a little bit sort of out of sight, out of mind. I think leaders need to operate, especially if they have those hybrid environments, as if everybody is remote, right? So even if people are in the office, everyone should be logged in from their computer to the meeting. There shouldn't be some people around a conference table and then some people logged in because without uh, intending, the conversation around the conference table is going to be more engaged and the people on the line are going to miss some things. I also think that if a manager feels so compelled and says, everyone has to be here, they have to acknowledge that they're going to lose some good people because not everyone is in a circumstance where they can come in. And especially right now with like the great resignation, people have choices and they're voting with their feet. So if a manager digs in in that way, I would say that's an opportunity for some coaching and for them to think critically about why that matters so much to them, right? Why does it matter so much to you that the people are in person? And is it that you feel that the work has to be done in person or is it a fact that it must be done in person? And I think there's a trade-off there. If they do make that determination, they're making a, a pretty conscious decision to lose good talent because employees don't have to do that anymore. There's plenty of remote opportunities for them. Pamela Fuller is author of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. She's also a Franklin Covey thought leader on inclusion and bias. Pamela, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure, Celeste. Thanks so much for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm today's host, Celeste Headley, and Farai Chidea is executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our bookers and producers. Teresa Carey, Emily J. Daly, and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Shield and engineered by Adam Runer and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.